Donald Trump's blink and you might just miss it moment on the stand tonight on a bonus hour of Laura Coates Live. Three minutes, three whole minutes, or maybe three short minutes. That's how long the former president was on the stand today in the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. And he still managed, still managed to say something that got part of his testimony stricken from the record. Now, before the jury even got into the room, there was a, well, let's describe him as an agitated Trump. He was interrupting his own lawyer, saying, I never met the woman. I don't know who the woman is. I never met this woman, unquote. Then you met an agitated judge who told Trump to pipe it down. Then Trump takes the stand, raises his right hand, swears to give truthful testimony. His attorney, Alina Haba, asks if he stood by his earlier deposition in the case. A hundred percent. Yes, Trump replies. Haba then asks Trump, did you deny the allegation because Ms. Carroll made an accusation? That's exactly right. Yes, I did. She said that I, I considered it a false accusation. Totally false, Trump replies. The judge then cuts him off, saying, everything you said after, yes, I did, is stricken. Why, you might ask? Well, because E. Jean Carroll's accusations have already been proven to be true in yet another case. Now, this one we're talking about today is one about him continuing to defame her. Back to the testimony. Haba's final question to Trump, did you ever instruct anyone to hurt Miss Carroll in your statements? Trump's reply, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. So did that three minutes on the stand help him or hurt him with the jury? By the way, he will likely be back in court tomorrow. Let's talk about all of it. It'll take longer than three minutes here on this particular show. I want to bring in CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams, as well as white-collar federal criminal defense attorney Rebecca Legrand. I'm so glad both of you are here. First of all, it took longer to argue about what he would talk about and the parameters at trial than I'm actually testifying today. And, of course, it was less than five minutes. Yeah. He was already admonished by the judge. Are you surprised that there was testimony stricken? Uh, I am not surprised there was testimony stricken. And not only was it only five minutes, but I think a total of nine words or whatever from the president are now part of the record. Mm -hmm. He said no comma and then went on uh, into a little bit of a monologue. Now, the challenging thing here, I was even talking to my wife about this earlier tonight, not a lawyer. Juries can't unhear the things they hear. The judge might have instructed them to strike anything after the point at which the president had said uh, no but. Um, it's like telling you right now, don't picture don't a pink pic elephant. Don't pick it's whatever all you can see you right do, now. Whatever you do, no don't pink, pink elephant. elephant. <laughs> and literally, and that's kind of what happened in court today. Um, so there's, uh, I'm not surprised. Now, frankly, I'm surprised that it was as constrained as it was. I would have thought he would have figured out a way to give a speech or his lawyer would have popped off a little bit. But the judge managed to maintain a, a fair amount of control here based on what we saw. Were you surprised by that? I mean, obviously, first of all, him taking to the stand for some may have been surprising that he would use this today and not have done it a year ago when what he wanted to talk about in terms of sexual assault, that was the time to talk about what he did or did not do. Correct. So uh, a normal defendant, I think, would not have testified here. This trial is only about damages. It has already been established what happened here. And Judge Kaplan was graphic today and accurate. And if it's okay, I think what he said is important. I think it's part of why Trump was reined in. Judge Kaplan is extremely experienced. He's been on the bench for 30 years. He knows how to handle difficult, complex trials and run a tight ship. 
And that's why he spent that time before Trump took the stand mm -hmm. making clear what are the boundaries here. And what he had to say explicitly to Trump and his attorneys was it is already a fact for this case because it has already been established by a unanimous journey that Donald Trump penetrated this woman's vagina mm -hmm. without her consent forcefully. That is established. He cannot fight that. It has been established by a jury. And I think in response to that, at least some reporters said that uh, Trump made sort of like an ug face. But, you know, uh, uh, he said things, you know, on Access Hollywood that, that sounded yeah. similar. Well, you know, when you think about this, and I think this is the part that many people who are hearing about it, they get confused about this part. Why is it always defamation if you are defending yourself. That's the part that I think people get hung up on and say, well, hold on a second. Can't he just say, I didn't do it? I don't know her? Why is that enough to be defamatory when he can't do it now? Okay. Um, and here's where it gets a little bit confusing. You can say, I did not do it. You cannot make statements that, number one, will harm someone's reputation, or number two, hurt them financially in some way. And so, for instance, I did not do it might I be the same for a as a liar, right? That's, sure. a, that's the conflation people do. Sure. You're a liar. She's crazy. She's out of her mind. She's fabricating facts. This writer, who purports to be a columnist, lies and tells untruths all over the world. He just hurt her reputation as a professional. And so that's where defamation kicks in. Now, to say that there's a clear line between what is a matter of self-defense and what is, or personal defense yeah. and what is a defamatory statement is a blurry one, and judges have struggled with it for years. But if you notice why Judge Kaplan quickly cut the former president off after the word no, it was a yes or no question. And once he started getting into the specifics of, I did it, I didn't do it, I don't believe her, she's lying, that's where you start getting into the realm of defamation. Yeah. And here, it's established that he did it. Yes. There was a trial, there were jurors, the evidence was heard. And he had a chance to testify then. Correct. And chose, and not, chose to. not to then. And now wants to probably put on a little bit of a show, and Judge Kaplan was having none of it. Um, uh, but I mean, these are, these are very serious allegations, and, and there is a difference between just saying, uh, I have a right to a defense, I think I'm going to be, I think I'm innocent, and, and lying about, in a hurtful way, about something that happened. Hurting a woman, and then lying about it, and, and smearing her reputation. I mean, that they is, want, yeah. excuse me, sorry, they wanted to focus a lot on that they believe she exaggerated the threats. You know, the idea of de defamation means that somebody had an established reputation. It was lessened in the eyes of the community based on what you have said. It was provably false in some way. They're trying to make all these different connections. The focus on the exaggeration of the threat is where they're going to try to lessen whatever damages may come in. How do you do that successfully? So they did it. They attempted to do it a little bit today by bringing in emails suggesting that when she spoke to other people, she minimized the amount of harm that she had suffered or said that, or even, you know, brought in uh, emails from a friend who said, well, she's kind of crazy herself, right? I don't believe all the things mm -hmm. she says. That's that, that's what you do. Um, any sensible as attorney, as a defendant, what you would do is say that, number one, this person wasn't as, as hurt as much as they thought they were, or number two... The, the facts aren't as this person has, has relayed them now, again. Or they weren't held in high esteem in the first place. In the first place. Now, again, um, you know, as Rebecca's made the point several times here, a jury has already found that this thing happened. Now all we're, needs to be sorted out is how much was her reputation harmed and how much uh, did she suffer a financial 
pip. Real quick, we have now two cases in New York where it's not a matter of whether it is bound to have happened. Now it's how much it's going to cost you. Right. This is a trend mm-hmm. for Trump. It is. And it's going to keep happening. I mean, he's still out there doing it. He's, he's inviting the next suit right now. And, and you know, he's, he's leaving the courthouse saying, this is not America. Well, you know, it's the America I know. It's the courts I know. When judges and juries make decisions and then you ignore them, you're going to get indicted again. You're going to get uh, sued again. So. Well, and more to the point, every word he says now yeah. can still be used in this trial, which is not done yet. So the judge can, if he goes and gives a press conference tomorrow, the judge can call him right in and impeach him, sort of contradict his yeah. statements based on things he said. Just stop talking. Like, if yeah. you're, just stop, just don't talk. All right, well, we'll, we'll take that advice right now. Elliot, Rebecca, <laughs> thank you. We're going to stop talking. Gonna now stop let's talking. discuss calls for the dismissal of District Attorney Fonnie Willis in the 2020 election subversion case against Trump and his co-defendants in Georgia, pointing to alleged misconduct between Willis and her lead prosecutor. Let's bring in senior legal analyst and former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Michael, good to see you. This has been... Quite the distraction from the underlying facts in these cases and what the trial calendar may look like. In Fulton County today, CNN has exclusive reporting that Fonnie Willis and lead prosecutor Nathan Wade and others in the office are expected to receive subpoenas for a February 15th hearing on the allegations of an alleged affair, of financial misconduct. What might that hearing reveal? Well, I'm glad to be with you. And you're right. It's just a mess right now. And this is a huge Mm -hmm. distraction to the case. Um, You know, my guess is that the judge who has run, I think, a good courtroom and has kept things moving along. So I give him kudos for that. um, I think he'll probably take control of the situation. Um, He does not want to get into a real housewife situation where this is just salacious details spread around the courtroom that have nothing to do with the case. It wouldn't surprise me at all for him to say, look, you know, I want you to state in your place as an officer of the court, what of the allegations made the motion have merit, which ones are true and which ones you deny. Uh, And that may narrow the issues that come out with witnesses. But as it stands right now, there'll be witnesses subpoenaed in. I'm sure there'll be testimony about trips taken and money spent and uh, all those things that uh, are raised in the motion, uh, which I think, frankly, uh, again, distract from the case and probably could be put to bed fairly quickly uh, if the district attorney and Mr. Wade, if, if there's any truth, and we don't know that, I don't know that, but if there's any truth to the motion, if they could probably put this to bed pretty quickly by simply stepping back uh, from this particular case. Well, Trump is joining this motion to not only have them step away, but actually have the Georgia election case itself dismissed over right. the allegations of misconduct that Willis and Wade are, are emerging, that, they, that it would have them disqualified. But... You know, when I keep thinking about this and you read the case law in Georgia, think about the ethics. And of course, you've got the hint of impropriety and all things are going on. But because it doesn't go to the core, as we now know, the core set of facts alleged in this wide ranging complaint, should they have to step down? What is the practical effect of this distraction? Well, I, I think there's no chance that this is the death blow to the case. I, I, I will say that. I, there, this case is not going to be dismissed because of these allegations. And frankly, mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I don't know that even the, the, the personal allegations have much merit anyway. I mean, at, at, at this point, that may be something for another place, another venue. At this stage. It, has, it has nothing to do really with this case. What matters is whether or not uh, there may have been some money and some benefit 
received, for instance, uh, money that was paid out to a prosecutor who was keeping the case going, and suddenly the district attorney who appointed that prosecutor may have received some benefit from it. That's going to be the hook, I think, at the end of the day. It's not going to be about the, the the other allegations in there. So, you know, that that is the problem that she's facing. And as a prosecutor, what she wants to do is have a case that has clean optics because you want people, even the detractors of a case, to be able to have confidence in what happened, to not have to second guess every decision you make. But essentially now, if these if these allegations are true, they have given them the stones to throw at this case. So you're gonna have people say, well, it's politically motivated. It was done to uh, enable uh, the relationship, or, you know, to, to help send some money to somebody that she had a relationship with. I mean, they have, they have given them the tools to attack it. So to kind of keep the case, uh, protected to recognize your duty as a prosecutor, even though I, I do not think it frankly rises exactly to the uh, black letter law textbook definition of a conflict for a prosecutor. Uh, I, I also think it has the appearance of impropriety. And so prosecutors have a duty to make sure that that doesn't get in the way of the pursuit of justice in a courtroom. And that, that unfortunately is what happened. That's what the judge is going to have to deal with it, You know, the, the, this is not the first time we've had an incident like this. We had the issue with the fundraiser uh, thrown back some period of time, you know, back earlier in judgment, Bernie basically said, you, you're kind of out of this and the optics here are awful. Well, if those optics were bad, um, these right now are probably I indescribable. Well, you know, those who are defendants, have and will continue to seize on this and hoping that the appearance of impropriety will be translated to undermining the case, but focusing on the underlying allegations contained in the indictment as part of a team that has brought it, I will be most interested to see what impact it has on the case. And again, she's an elected official. Perhaps the voters will make their own determinations if they do in fact think it is an insurmountable hurdle. But we shall see, Michael Moore. I think you called it a housewives moment. I didn't know you were a fan. We'll talk after <laughs> offline about which is your particular franchise. Right. Who knew? I'm not going to ask you right. here because well, they're all your favorites. Well, I know. Yeah, but we'll talk. We'll talk later. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great to see you. Laura. Good to see you, too. Now, the question, does Donald Trump think that he's actually still the president? I should pause there for, for effect, but you know it's an actual question because I'm asking because he seems to be trying to kill the immigration deal in the Senate as if he has a pen that could ultimately sign legislation still. We'll talk about it next. So what could have been a huge deal may now be up in smoke. Today, Donald Trump weighing in on a bipartisan immigration deal that senators have been working on for months. Think about what I just said there. He's weighing in. They've worked on it for months. Former president calling the deal, quote, meaningless. Yet many Senate Republicans, as in incumbents, are not quite jumping on board with the former president. I think the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. Don't even look at where we are politically right now. This issue for the last 30 years has not passed Congress because it's hard. It's emotional. Every side jumps out that we're going to take the action to actually make things better. Uh, I think it would be tragic. So I hope no one is, is trying to uh, take this away for campaign purposes. 
Just moments ago, an aide to senior House GOP leader Steve Scalise telling Senate counterparts the border deal is dead on arrival in the House. Joining me now, CNN's Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona and Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic. Ladies, I'm so happy to have you both here. Am, am I like in an alternate universe? Because Donald Trump does not have the GOP nomination. Maybe he'll be presumptive. Who knows? But he's not the president of the United States. He's not a current RNC nominee. How is he having so much of an impact on current negotiations? Well, he is on the path, the path towards the nomination, and he has had a resurgence inside the GOP, and that is having a real-time impact on Capitol Hill. And this is a very familiar dynamic. It is not the first time that senators have worked behind the scenes on a very delicate issue for months, only to have Trump come and blow it all up, because a lot of members are scared of crossing him. And that is just the truth on Capitol Hill. They are worried now about seeing as undermining Trump, because he's reached out to them personally and said, I want to campaign on this issue in November, and I don't want Joe Biden to have a victory on this issue where he is politically vulnerable. So that is driving a lot of the discussion on Capitol Hill right now. You mean the idea that he would simply try to undermine it because I need to campaign on this issue? That would be, I mean, I couldn't see the emperor would have on no clothes at that point. Is that not obvious? That's really troubling. And I've been covering this issue since the Obama administration. I've always heard murmurs of this fear that perhaps Democrats and Republicans are holding on to the status quo because they think they have more to gain from the current reality than from actually fixing the situation. But, you know, Donald Trump has basically come out and said it now. And we're talking about an issue that affects human lives, you know, an issue that has brought in family separations. You know, you're talking about life and death situations for a lot of people when you're looking at the question of asylum. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you're talking about American cities that are, are overwhelmed and clearly a system that's broken. And so to come out and baldly say that we can't make a deal on this issue because the Democrats only want it for political reasons, I think that has some center and, and moderate Republicans concerned, you know, to just tell voters straight up that they're really not interested, that Donald Trump really isn't interested in fixing this issue that he talks about as much as he does. Uh, but Donald Trump has won out on these issues before, and he may very well again. I mean, he's talking about and encouraging deploying the National Guard right now. I, last I checked, that was the actual president's discussion, decision as commander in chief. And, and yet here we are, maybe too many cooks in the kitchen. What do you know about this deployment? Deploying the National Guard is on Donald Trump's list of policies that he wants to put in place right away if he wins the election in 2024, opening up tent camps that would take in thousands of people, unfettered arrests and unprecedented numbers of deportations. I mean, these are all things that he's made very explicitly clear that he has planned if he's to win the election. And so we shouldn't have any question or qualm about it at this point. You know, it was a different situation in 2016. Donald Trump campaigned on bold ideas, having controversial ideas on immigration. But a lot of the time we talked about those ideas as probably things that wouldn't actually come to fruition. Now we know for sure that he will pursue them. Melanie, I mean, is this an indication, though, it's been, what, four decades since there was last immigration reform? They were close it's gone. I mean, is this Washington, D.C. yet again not taking yes for an answer? Because there's been concessions made. Right. 
immigration is something that has long eluded Washington. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to get a deal on immigration for many years. But what's interesting about these talks now, Caitlin and I were talking before the show, we actually don't know what's in it. A lot of the Republicans, including Donald Trump, don't know what's in that's, it, which is kind amazing. of ironic that they're out here bashing it. But based on our conversations with sources, what they're looking at is fairly narrow here. And the White House has has offered some pretty big concessions. They are willing to restrict asylum laws. They're willing to rein in the president's parole authorities. These are things that Democrats, especially on the left, have been really reluctant to give in on. But it shows just how much desire there is on the left to get a deal. Republicans, though, you know, the Donald Trump factor can't be overstated here. In fact, one Republican senator who was talking on condition of anonymity to my colleague Lauren Fox said this proposal would have had almost unanimous Republican support if it weren't for Donald Trump. Again, just really underscoring wow. here how this already complicated issue just got even more complicated with Donald Trump. I, I can't believe it. I mean, it's, it's just so I mean, all that we've talked about with the border and reform and immigration and getting people to the table and the bipartisan effort to think that this could be the result is just stunning. Thank you both for being here, Melanie and Caitlin. Thank you both so much. Up next, there is breaking news out of Alabama after now the execution of a man using an untested method. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We have breaking news. Alabama has put to death Kenneth Smith. He is the first death row inmate known to die by nitrogen gas. It's a wholly new method of execution in this country, one that some experts have said is veiled in secrecy and could lead to excessive pain or even torture. Now, he was sentenced to death for a murder-for-hire plot in 1988. He appeared conscious for several minutes and shook on a gurney during the nitrogen hypoxia execution, according to one reporter who read notes compiled by all media witnesses who attended the execution. CNN's Isabella, um, excuse me, Isabel Rosales, excuse me, is in Alabama with more. Isabel, thank you for joining us. Tell us what happened tonight with the execution. Laura, this is the first new method of execution since 1982. That's when lethal injection was first introduced. Now, according to witnesses, uh, Kenneth's la- Kenneth Smith's last words were, in part, quote, tonight Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. After the execution, there was also a press conference with witnesses, including media observers, and they said that Smith appeared to be uh, conscious for several minutes, for about two minutes, He shook against his mask and the gurney. And then there were several minutes of him deeply breathing before his breathing then slowed down. Also at that press conference was Alabama Department of Corrections Commissioner John Hamm. Uh, He was asked about that shaking, especially keeping in mind that in court documents, the state had argued that he would be unconscious in seconds and dead within minutes. Here's what he had to say. 
appeared that one Smith was holding his breath as long as he could. And then uh, there's also information out there. Of, uh, he struggled against his restraints a little bit, but there's some involuntary movement and some agonal breathing. So uh, that was all expected and is in the uh, side effects that we've seen or researched on nitrogen epoxia. So, so nothing was out of the order of what we were expecting. You think it was involuntary? Yes. And uh, we were the first media outlet to speak with the spiritual advisor of Smith, uh, Reverend Jeff Hood, who described it. He was in the execution chamber right next to uh, Smith, and he described it as, quote, absolute torture, saying that Smith was conscious for several minutes, struggling against the gurney and the mask, as we heard from other media observers gasping. He says that his face turned colors, and it was not painless, as state officials um, claimed it would be. Laura. Isabel Rosales, thank you so much for your reporting. Next, I'll talk to an expert who says the state of Alabama doesn't have the competency to carry out an execution using a new method. He is Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. Alabama death row inmate Kenneth Smith was just executed using nitrogen gas, the first time this has ever been done in the United States. He was convicted of murder for the 1988 killing of Elizabeth Sennett. Just a few years later, in 1992, the conviction was overturned on a procedural issue. It wasn't until 1996 when Smith was retried and convicted with a recommendation of life in prison. A judge overruled the recommendation and sentenced him to death. But it wasn't until 2022 that the state even attempted to carry out the execution. That attempt failed. Just a year later, an Alabama court ruled execution by nitrogen gas would now be acceptable. There were two last-minute appeals to the Supreme Court, his lawyers arguing a second attempt at execution, this time by nitrogen gas, might run afoul of the Constitution's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Both of those appeals were denied, the last such denial happening earlier tonight with the liberal justices saying that they would have paused the execution. Joining me now, Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. Brian, thank you for being with us this evening. I, I look to your insight and mind on moments like this to think about the weight of this moment. And, and you worked closely with the attorneys representing Kenneth Smith. What is your reaction to what has happened tonight? Well, I think it's really tragic and regrettable. Um, you know, we had warned that the state would not be able to carry out this execution in the way that they were uh, predicting. And I'm very concerned about the witness reports that indicate uh, that Mr. Smith may have suffered uh, terribly, uh, writhing in pain, uh, struggling, uh, breathing heavily. Uh, showing signs of distress that witnesses are reporting is not consistent with an execution method that meets the Eighth Amendment's requirements for avoiding cruel and unusual punishment. And even without that, uh, I, I don't believe that uh, the state of Alabama should have been permitted to attempt a second execution. We have to remember that 14 months ago, Kenneth Smith was told that he was going to die on a certain date at a certain time. Uh, he was then strapped to a gurney for four hours, waiting for them to kill him. 
Then they began stabbing him with these needles, trying to find a vein. At one point, they put him in a stress position, lifted him vertically so that his arms were spread out like someone on a cross, and they were jabbing the needle into his neck. And they finally stopped the execution when the warrant expired. That was traumatizing. That was horrific. And we don't think that a state should subject someone in that condition to a second execution without something radically different happening. And that didn't happen in Alabama. They just changed the amount of time they had to carry out the execution. And that was the thrust of the argument, is that he had already been tortured in a way that is unacceptable in our society. And now we see that that continued tonight uh, with a process that there are a host of questions surrounding. You know, some would look at this issue and their visceral reaction might be, excuse me, this is somebody convicted of murder somebody who has been sentenced to death. And the idea of cruel and unusual seems an inconsistent of an objection when the death penalty is obviously on the table. When you look at the Eighth Amendment and the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, is there a bright line rule of some kind to which we can look to determine how a court could judge the manner of execution to rise to that level? Or are we in truly with this new method, uncharted territory? Well, I, I, I've, I've always believed that the threshold question of the death penalty isn't whether someone deserves to die mm -hmm. for the crime they've committed. The threshold question is, do we deserve to kill? In our society, we don't rape people who rape. We don't torture people who torture. That's because we believe that the integrity of the law means that we have to do better than the worst offenders in our society. And so it's not enough to say this person committed a violent crime. And I don't think we have a system that has consistently and fairly and reliably carried out the death penalty in a way. And that's what creates the Eighth Amendment questions. Uh, in Mr. Smith's case, the jury that heard the evidence that convicted him returned a verdict of life. Uh, it's only in Alabama that Mr. Smith could face the execution. The elected judge overrode the jury's verdict of life and sentence him to death. There's not another state in the country where he would have been facing execution. So if we care about the jury's perspective on what should have happened, he would have never been in this situation. And I think the Eighth Amendment questions are important because the integrity of the death penalty, when for every nine people we've executed, we've identified one innocent person on death row who's innocent. It's a shocking rate of error. It would not be accepted by food safety administrations or airline safety. We wouldn't tolerate that kind of error, but we continue to tolerate it in the death penalty. It's a punishment that is disproportionately applied to people of color and the poor. And so that raises the bar when you start asking questions about, is this punishment meeting our Eighth Amendment a guarantee to avoid punishment that is unusual or cruel? And I think subjecting someone to an execution process that extends over 14 months where it begins on November 22nd, uh, 2022, and, and doesn't end until uh, January 25th, uh, 2023, with a lot of anguish and a lot of torture, I think that's unacceptable. And I think we can, and we should do better in this country. If we're gonna have a death penalty, we can't do what we did to Kenneth Smith. Why do you think, I mean, given all that you have raised, why do you think the Supreme Court opted not to stay the execution or look more closely at a method that involved, you said, a, a judge overturning the will of the jury that has not been tried well, before, I, where there wasn't true, excuse me, where there wasn't true transparency into what would be the physiological effect on not only him, but others in the room. Why pass it? 
Well, I think we're really struggling in the courts. I'll, I'll be honest. I think we have a lot of judges in this country who believe that finality is more important than fairness. Mm. And they don't want to intervene in these cases, even when there's dramatic evidence of innocence or there's dramatic evidence of a constitutional violation. And then there are other judges who believe that nothing is more important than the integrity of the law, than our commitment to fairness, to doing what our Constitution requires. And I want to just note uh, that there were federal judges in all of the appeals filed by Mr. Smith who said this execution should not proceed. And the 11th Circuit, just a few hours before, uh, Justice uh, Jill Pryor said that she would grant a stay. Mr. Smith's uh, case uh, execution was stayed in 2022 by two federal courts. This current U.S. Supreme Court seems to be really prioritizing allowing states uh, to have their way, to have access to these executions. But there has to be a limit or we're going to see a continuing uh, downgrade in the quality and the standards and I think the fairness that people in America are expecting. Brian Stevenson, you have to wonder if this is the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning or the down the road is a lot more to discuss. He said in his last words, tonight in Alabama, humanity took its step backwards. We'll see if those words continue to resonate. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, he was one of 10 Americans released from Venezuelan detention in a prisoner swap. Now he is speaking out exclusively for the first time here. Savoy Wright is my guest, and he's next. It is the stuff of nightmares, quite frankly, but for American citizen Savoy Wright, it was a reality. Detained for no apparent reason, Wright says that he was kidnapped, held for ransom, and confined to a tiny Venezuelan prison cell for nearly two months. And while his family fought for his release, he worried for his safety, sharing his cell with up to four others. Last month, he became one of 10 Americans released from Venezuelan detention in a prisoner swap. Savoy Wright is here now to tell his story for the very first time exclusively to CNN. Savoy, thank you so much for being here and and welcome home. I had the pleasure of speaking to your mother and sister who were fighting for your return and it must be overjoying to see them and be home. But tell me a little bit about how you even got to that experience. You were detained. You didn't know why, but you knew that you were in trouble. Yes. I just want to say thanks for having me been quite a journey. Um, so how did I get to the experience? Essentially, uh, first start with kidnapping, right? So it was kind of a interesting situation where I was led to a certain area and it was either you want to go jail or you want to go home mm. type of thing. You're going to be a witness or you're going to jail is what they told me. So um, that's, it was started with shock and I just kind of went along to, to kind of see what the process would be and, and uh, it ended up getting worse and worse and worse and worse until I became a um, political hostage that was being traded and a huge sanctions deal um, mm. internationally. So, I mean, once they realized you were American, that changed a lot, didn't it? You said you're a premium. Yeah. What did that mean to you? It can mean very serious, severe danger, but it can also mean uh, dollar signs, right? Or opportunity for leverage and trading. Um, but it, it really, the word got out I was American and I was in Venezuela. It wasn't the best opportunity. Yeah. Some would, you know, look at the what the State Department and their different categories of different places. Venezuela, obviously, a, a high risk area. You you traveled there nonetheless, but one could not have anticipated this happening. 
Did you realize, though, the extent of danger you may have been in even going? Yes. Yeah, so actually, I'd been there before. Um, mm. So I had a visa actually in Venezuela. I speak Spanish. Uh, I've been to pretty much all Latin countries in, in Latin America except for Bolivia, Suriname, Guyana, and Guyana Francesa. Um, so I'm very familiar with the culture, uh, with, with the terrain in Venezuela, the people. Um, you know, I was looking at business opportunities. So for me, it's, it felt like, yeah, there's risk. There's, there's risk everywhere. There's risk in the United States too, but I didn't realize the extent of the risk. I was an American citizen abroad. I mean, visa or not, you ended up in a prison. Correct. And what happened to you there could have cost your life. There were moments you thought you would, in fact, not get out. Yes. What was your experience like inside of a Venezuelan prison? Yeah, well, I was actually moved around to four different places. Really? So I had four different experiences. In each of those, it was the absolute worst. And then I saw a pattern. It would eventually get better. So whether through prayer calling on certain archangels, God, uh, reading the New Testament. It was one of the only things that were available to be to read. Mm-hmm. You don't really have privileges to read material. Um, sometimes a lot of coffee to stay up at nights. Why were you so intent on staying up? Were you afraid of being harmed? Uh, there are some places it wasn't safe probably to go to sleep. Inside the prisons? Correct. Was it even worse because you were an American in that prison? Um, you could say that. You could say it was worse in some places it was better. Yeah. I mean, you're very tall sitting here. Obviously, it's deceptive in television. We appear to be the same height. We are not. I'm five foot three. Uh, you're what, eight feet tall? I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, but you're, I think, like six, seven. How tall are you? Six, eleven. Six, eleven. Okay. Well, see, even more so. Yeah. I'm trying to picture in an average prison. Right. Being able to have the facilities and the space, even if you were the only person in the cell, but you right. shared with up to four people. Right. And with your height and phys- physical appearance, how did that impact you? Some of the some of the actual the holding cells where I was, there was up to ten people or more. So it was actually more than four. Um, beds, you kind of make it work, sleep diagonally. Um, but you just it's really about survival, right? So there's a word in Spanish, aguantar, which is like to stand. So you're essentially you, you withstand enough because they would always say, you know, you need to adapt. You need to this is make this your normal. I'm like, this isn't normal. I'm gonna survive. I'm gonna I'm gonna get through these times, and then I'm I'm gonna get out. And then, of course, you have those moments when you break. You just say, how did I get here? When am I ever going to make it out? When you're looking at that wall, you haven't been outside for 30 days. Haven't seen the sun, you know, fresh air. Little things we take for granted, right? You certainly, those who held you at different points seem to exploit financially the the dire straits that you found yourself in. Yes. Um, at, At some point, were you aware that the State Department was going to try to help, that you had been designated as wrongfully held what was that process like of, of having that revealed to you? It was never revealed to me. Really? I didn't even know I was a hostage until the end. So it was originally it was money grab, kidnapping. I was being detained, investigated to make sure that I wasn't a spy. Um, there's, a, there's a concern for espionage that's big in Venezuela, especially for foreigners from the United States. Once I was cleared as not being a spy, I was still declared as a spy, and then I was moved to a political prison. Um, and at that point, some of the Americans were actually able to let me know, hey, we're going to let you know what's going on. By the way, we're being held hostage in a, in a huge sanctions deal as leverage. And my heart dropped. And it was just the worst nightmare. All over again. Some of them have been there up to two years. Really? Yeah. And you finally found yourself um, able to get on that plane to be able to return. You are still grappling with a lot of the trauma of the time you were there. Um, I can imagine the, the psychological 
effects and the emotional turmoil that you yes. must grapple with. Yeah. But what is your statement you want to make? How do you, what do you want people to know about what has happened to you to stop it from happening to them? Well, one, in, 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 the, in the most difficult times, I was never alone. My spiritual family was there, my spiritual support. You want to call it God, the universe, the angels. When I really needed it, I called on them and they were there. So if people know you're never, you're never alone, right? Number two, prevention. This is, this is an issue that's happening all over the world. And I was in the office for the, the, the SPIHA office, one of the hostage affairs that helped to rescue us. And they rescued people from all over the world, right? Latin America, um, Asia, the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, you name it. And there, there's people that have been rescued and, and actually were wrongfully detained some even who were murdered in different places and brought back. So this is a real issue that's happening everywhere. People are kidnapped and trafficked from the U.S. as well. Um, so my mentors who, who actually helped to, to bring us home, who were special in my case, said, you know, so what makes sure you, you mention about spring break coming up. For all the families who send their, their kids on spring break, just think about it. You know, 50% of the countries are, have elections this year. This is a very delicate time, you know, so... Kids are working hard, they're in school, but just, just think about it twice. Is it really worth it to send them in some places where they could be put at risk? Savoy Wright, welcome home. Thank, Thank you. you. So nice to see you. Thank you. We have a lot more to talk about today. Unbelievable to think about what he has endured. We've got another hour of Laura Coates Live coming up. We'll learn more about this RNC plan that would have made Trump the presumptive nominee. That's coming up. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. The plan that would have named Donald Trump the presumptive nominee for the GOP tonight on Laura Coates Live. News, sorry. Good now, great. News today has been stunning. The Republican National Committee was considering, I mean seriously considering, a resolution that would declare Donald Trump the presumptive nominee. And just like that, after we've only heard from, remember, it's only been two states. We do have 50 and territories, of course. So in essence, that would mean that Iowa, New Hampshire would get to decide who is the nominee, leaving everybody else, even those who wanted to vote, totally out of luck. So the whole thing blew up in their faces, that is. Trump ally and RNC committeeman David Bossy withdrawing the resolution tonight. But here's the thing. A source tells CNN the Trump campaign had initially backed the idea and the former president himself was, well, on board, not surprisingly. Then all of a sudden he changed his tune when the backlash began. Posting on social media tonight, they should, quote, do it the old fashioned way and finish the process off at the ballot box. All caps, of course. Followed by, I mean, maybe Captain Obvious would have written that at some point in time. Of course, you follow the old-fashioned rule. It's called a democracy. But, you know, who am I? The Haley camp, not surprisingly, less than enthusiastic about the whole thing because she's still running, 
quote, who cares what the RNC says? That's their quote. Going on is just the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, organize a debate in South Carolina. Let's go to CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton at that magical wall. Harry, look, you know, the RNC was poised to declare Trump the presumptive nominee. This would really be unprecedented, of course, at this point in the race, right? It'd be unheard of. It'd be unheard of, Laura. There's no other word around it, right? Competitive GOP primary end dates when there was a presumptive GOP nominee. March 4th, back in 2008, it's the earliest in the last decade and a half. It's also the earliest on record in the modern primary era. And of course, keep in mind, Laura, that at that particular point, we had already run through Super Tuesday. We had already run through most of the delegates. Other dates more recently, 2012, April 25th, 2016, when, of course, Trump clinched back in that particular cycle, it was May 3rd. So, Laura, the idea that we'd have a presumptive nominee in January is frankly off the maps and not anything I would have ever heard of, at least before this year. And by the way, only a tiny fraction of primary voters have even had a chance to even cast their votes. We've got had Iowa, we've had New Hampshire, not exactly the rest of the 48 states or representative of every state in this nation. Can you put that into perspective about the relative number of people who have actually participated so far yeah. and what would actually be ignored if they actually do declare that now? Yeah, I mean, you said it, right? I mean, just take a look at the map. GOP contests that have taken place so far in red in Iowa, in red in New Hampshire. There's a lot of gray on this map, Laura, a lot of gray. You mentioned those 48 <laughs> other states. You might also mention the District of Columbia. How about some territories that also haven't had their contests so far? Don't forget about Guam. I never forget about Guam, Laura. <laughs> Don't forget about Guam. Don't forget about Guam. Republican delegates so far, only 62 have been allocated, just 62. The vast majority still up for grabs. 2,367. I'm not necessarily a math major, Laura, but 2,367 seems a lot larger than the number of 62 that have been allocated so far. I mean, can you imagine if it were the actual general election and someone said, okay, we've got results from two states. We're good. We're going to declare a presumptive victor. And by the way, there is somebody else still in the race, a la Nikki Haley, who's saying, excuse me, what about the remainder? And of course, as you mentioned, Guam. But it surprised you, Harry, that, that, that Trump thought that many in the GOP establishment would actually support this decision. No, you know, Trump likes to sell himself as an anti-establishment candidate. But the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, if you look at major GOP endorsements from governors or members of Congress, look at this. Donald Trump has 121. Back at this point in the 2016 cycle, he had zero. He had zero. Look how many Nikki Haley has so far. She has just three. Trump may like to sell himself as the anti-establishment, but at this point, the establishment loves Donald Trump. Wow. Lovely you pronounced that loves, too. Harry Enton, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, now I want to bring in people I love, Republican strategist Rena Shaw and former RNC communications director Doug High. I'm so glad that both of you are here. Look, Doug, I mean, sources say that Trump at first was on board, right? But then he started to backtrack when he got the backlash. The fact that this was even on the table, was it a miscalculation on their part? I think it was a mis miscalculation if it leaked. And it leaked mm. because David Drucker at the dispatch was able to report this. If it hadn't leaked and gone to the winter meeting, it probably would have passed. And really? What this would have been what a huge change in what we call at the RNC Rule 11, which is a rule of neutrality. And as a rule of such neutrality, I think this would surprise a lot of people. The RNC cannot support Mike Johnson in his reelection um, for Congress as Republican Speaker of the House. If he has anybody running against him in a Republican primary, say some crackpot who 
thinks that the aliens not only have been here, but are coming back and bringing Elvis with them. The RNC has to be neutral unless the Republican Party in Louisiana, the two RNC committee members and the state chair, all file a Rule 11 letter. That's true of Senate candidates, House candidates, certainly true of the presidency as well, and then allows the, would allow the RNC in an unprecedented way to have joint fundraising campaigns with the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign needs that, so does the RNC. Uh, would allow the RNC to serve as an anti-Nikki Haley propaganda arm and digital and data arm as well. It would be a huge deal. And that was the miscalculation, was that they could do this in secret. You know, just thinking about what that would entail, I mean, the secrecy of it, the fact that it would disenfranchise voters as well. I mean, only New Hampshire and Iowa are just two of the 50. Yeah. The idea that that would be the deciding factor, and as you saw from Harry, how early this would be in the mm -hmm. process, what about the idea for voters who see this and say, well, what about us? You know, it's, I find it really, really rich because the crowd that loved to scream election interference at, frankly, anything over the past four years is now trying to interfere in an election when there's one of their own who actually stands on pretty good footing despite the Iowa and New Hampshire results. And I have heard the most reductive, most facile arguments in support of Donald Trump come from Ronna McDaniel's mouth. And I think that is shameful for her. I think it's not the place that a party chair needs to be in. And I think there needs to be a reckoning. I think there need to be Republicans who say, you are stepping so far out of line that you are actually making this party a smaller and smaller tent. There are Americans who are so frustrated with Joe Biden that they are willing to look at the Republican Party, give it an honest shake after the Trump era. There are people who could not stand Trump that are willing to say, will this party make my life better? I have heard those arguments from Nikki Haley and yet you have the entire GOP apparatus ready to act in the interests of the mafia boss. That is what Trump has tried to behave as. And the adults in the room got involved. And he finally has a really solid operation around him, stacked with Bush people, I must add. That's very scary. And they, I'm sure, said to him, put this kind of statement out. Nikki Haley is actually fundraising on this already. Sure, she's done well. But the reality is, yes, Trump 2.0 has a more professional staff. Right on. But all things about Donald Trump, we know requires a word he used in his statement, devotion. Oh. All things must be held to Caesar. And so if you come up with an idea, Donald, we've got a good idea, so you're not going to have to deal with this mess. You know he's going to like it. It may not be the best idea of all time. And the vetting then in this case happened publicly. Okay. I think part of the irony here is, look, the RNC needs some help with fundraising. The Trump campaign needs some help with fundraising. If this had gone through, it also means that Ronnie, Mc Ronnie McDaniel's job would be in jeopardy because she would either be shown the door by Donald Trump or she would have been layered over and basically sent to the role as the guy with the stapler in office space. Oh, you can have an office in the basement. You'll, we'll move you a couple days later. So th this wouldn't have been a good idea for anybody, um, including the Trump campaign, because of the, uh, the arguments of democracy and unfairness and ultimately the swamp and, and things like mm. establishment. But say, I mean, the, the very next moment, if Nikki Haley jumps out of the race, if she does, if she decides not to or she's not successful for some route, they then could do that. They could, then could call him the presumptive nominee. Um, sure. You know, at that point, you, you have, well, if you have anybody running, right, so you, you, anybody on any ballot, you still have to remain objective. And that's why there's the political reality here. There's the mathematical one that Harry went through. And yes, two numbers don't necessarily compute there. But the rules of the RNC to be neutral, it's why then we have a congressional committee and a senatorial committee that don't have to be neutral. They can play in primaries however they choose or, or not play in those. The RNC, their Rule 11 neutrality is sacrosanct, and this would have been unprecedented. Rina Shah, Doug High, thank you both so much. Really, really fascinating.
Look, emotions are running high in the trial of the mother of the Michigan school shooter. Her son, Ethan Crumbly, pleaded guilty to killing four students and injuring seven others. Today, the prosecution alleges, quote, she didn't pull the trigger, but she is responsible. We'll break down the arguments next. The trial of the mother of Michigan school shooter Ethan Crumbly getting underway today. Jennifer Crumbly, along with her husband James, faces four charges of involuntary manslaughter for the alleged role they played in their son's shooting rampage. Now, they are standing trial separately, but both have pled not guilty to their respective charges. And if they are convicted, they face 15 years in prison. To break down the arguments that were in court today, I've got my own prosecutor and defense attorney here with me tonight, CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson, along with civil rights attorney and legal affairs commentator Ariva Martin. Now, Ariva will act as the prosecutor in this case, and Joey will act as the defense. I want to hear your sides of the arguments, and I'll also ask how you really feel when those masks come off. Ariva, begin with the prosecution. That's your role tonight. So what is the opening statement that you would make for us in this case as to why Jennifer Crumbly ought to be prosecuted for the crime that was carried out by her son? Here's what I would say, uh, Laura, if I was the prosecutor in this case. I would say that the evidence in this case will show that Ethan Crumbly's mother, Jennifer Crumbly, didn't pull the trigger, but she is as responsible for the death of those four innocent students in that Michigan high school as her son is. It will show that even though typically a parent is not held responsible for the intentional actions of their children, there are exceptions to this rule. And in this case, the evidence is so overwhelming and so heinous that this is that exception. The evidence will show that this defendant ignored flashing red lights and waving gigantic red flags. The evidence will show that she knew her son had a very severe mental health issue, he complained to her repeatedly about hallucinating, feeling isolated, feeling alone, uh, hearing voices, and having visions of using violence against others. It will show that despite knowing all of this, this defendant uh, put her own selfish desires over the needs of her son. She would not take him to a medical uh, facility. She wouldn't take him to a doctor or a hospital, but she found time in her schedule to have an affair outside of her marriage and to care for her horses. And if she had provided her son with the kind of time and care that she provided those animals and the time she dedicated to that extramarital affair, those four students in that high school would be alive today. Take a listen to what the prosecution said in that courtroom today to establish those red flags. This drawing, this math worksheet, was sent to her November the 30th, 2021, at 9.30 in the morning. She was sent this by her son's school counselor when he requested an immediate meeting with her at the school that day. He requested that meeting because this drawing, those words, suggest both weapon and injury. You will learn that these kind of meetings, when they occur with parents, can last an hour or longer. This one was abruptly ended by Jennifer Crumbly after just over 11 minutes. You'll learn that after the meeting when they left, they didn't embrace him. You'll learn that their home is just down the road from the Oxford High School. They didn't stop by the house to look for the gun. 
you know, this is a very important point that you, that Ariva has made, and that thought really does show people a little bit more. Prosecution, thank you so much. Joey, I'm going to turn now to the defense's opening statement, because, of course, you have the presumption of innocence. Why shouldn't Jennifer Crumbly face prosecution for her son's crimes? We cannot be a society that predicates guilt upon simple blame or predicates guilt upon vengeance. This case is not about horses. It's not about affairs. It's about a tragedy that occurred that should not have. But we do know that potentially it could have been prevented. But to blame the mother for this when she did not have the knowledge of what her child was doing is just wrong. And it's a bridge too far. The fact is, is that we're not here to assess perfect parenthood. We're here to assess accountability. And in looking at the issue of accountability, parents have challenging jobs. Life is a challenge in and of itself. Does a parent know everything their child is doing? Should a parent be accountable for every mental health malady that they do not know the extent and the severity of? It takes a village. And to blame the mother for her not knowing or having the understanding as to the extent of her child's injuries is not within the realm of the criminal justice system. Take a listen to what the defense had to say with respect to that issue in the opening statement. She will tell you that when she saw the materials in this case, she learned that her son had not been her son for months, that he had been manipulating her, that he had been hiding things from her, that he had been sending text messages, alarming text messages, to other people. We are at the very beginning of this trial. Both of you have put on the mask and played the role of either prosecution or defense, illuminating some of the arguments we're going to hear. And of course, there will likely be testimony from the defendant in this case. She's asking for her son, I think, as well to testify. So let's both of you take off the mask for a second. I want to get your insight from all of your vast experience. Beginning with you on this, um, Joey, I mean, Crumbly's parents are being tried separately. What does that signal to you when you first heard that? Is that going to be a pointing of the fingers, hoping the benefit of the doubt is given to one, not the other? Yeah, Laura, you've seen this. Ariva, you've mm -hmm. seen this as well, where defendants point fingers at each other. That's exactly what's happening here. I think the defense has taken the posture that the father is to blame and as much as he purchased the weapon, got the gun, and that was not with the knowledge of the mom. You'll hear the, not, you'll hear the mother in addition to that, Jennifer, blame the school for failing to alert her. But what it comes down to very briefly are a few issues. One is foreseeability. Is it foreseeable that if you're this careless that something like this can happen? And I think the jury could conclude, could conclude that the answer is yes. It also comes down to notice. Are you on notice? Ariva and her opening statement spoke to that issue. There are serious maladies here, and should you not as a parent have been aware of them and have addressed them, it's important, and then have you acted reasonably under those circumstances? And if the answer to that is no, then the issue of accountability could very well, Laura, lie with the mother, Jennifer, and she could be uh, in significant problems in this case. I mean, Ariva, the jury is comprised of men, women, parents in particular. You got to imagine that her taking the stand when she ultimately does is going to be very significant in trying to build out that case. What is going to strike you and strike a court for you in this case? 
I'm going to be looking how the jury responds to the issue of the gift of a gun. I think that's going to strike Laura at the heart of so many jurors. I think a lot of parents are going to be sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to be held accountable for everything my children do. But when they hear that this mother had information about her son's emotional state, and despite there being some you know, contradictions about what that evidence is, it's very clear that she knew her son was going through something very significant. And then to take a 15-year-old kid going through something like that into a gun store, buy him a gun, and then go to a shooting range where you shoot the gun with him, post on social media bragging about taking him to that shooting range, I think that's going to be very compelling evidence in favor of the prosecution. Well, we will see the trials going getting underway. We're going to continue to follow this story. It is very important. It's the first time we're seeing parents be held to account potentially for the actions of a mass shooter and a school setting in particular. Joey Jackson or even Martin, well done bringing out these issues to give us a greater understanding. Thank you both. Coming up next, our series we are doing here on Laura Coates Live, Exonerated. I'll speak to a grandmother who spent nearly 18 years in prison for a crime she did not commit. Her tearful and emotional story, next. Tonight, we want to introduce a new series we're doing for you here on Laura Coates Live, Exonerated. We'll tell you the stories of the many people who have been wrongly convicted of crimes and have spent decades, in some cases, in prison. People like Rosa Jimenez, who spent nearly 18 years in prison for a crime she did not commit. And thanks to the Innocence Project, she is now free. So what exactly happened in this case? Well, back in 2003... Rosa was a young mother living in Austin, Texas. She was babysitting 21-month-old Brian Gutierrez, something that she regularly did for children that were in her community, when Brian began choking and later died. Now, when paramedics arrived, they found a wad of paper towels in his throat. Rosa Jimenez, a pregnant mother of a two-year-old with no criminal record, was ultimately charged with murder. She was sentenced to 99 years in prison. But that's not all. When she was behind bars, awaiting her trial, she gave birth to her son while shackled and was given only five hours with him before he was taken away. Now, for the next 18 years, Rosa would not be allowed to touch her children. Here's the thing. There was no expert testimony during her trial. And frankly, once experts heard the details of the case, they were shocked. By 2020, more than five judges, more than five judges had determined the child's death was most likely an accident. She was released on bond in 2021, just in time to attend her daughter's wedding. It took two more years for her to be exonerated. And that same day, while she was fighting to clear her name, she became a grandmother. Joining me now, Rosa Jimenez and her attorney, Vanessa Potkin, who is also the director of special litigation at the Innocence Project. So happy to see both of you. Rosa, just in reading your story, just in hearing about it, it is truly stunning. But let me begin with this beautiful notion that on the day you were exonerated, you also became a grandmother. 
Tell me about those moments when you not only found out that your name was going to be cleared, but your daughter had just gone into labor. Oh, you're crying, sweetheart. Tell me why. Wait, what's 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 on your Um, what are you feeling right now? um, You brought back all these memories about having my child in prison and the enjoy at the same time having my grandbaby when I got exonerated. So I got emotional. Well, I can understand even thinking about that is difficult not to be emotional hearing about it. When you hear, heard me describe even a portion of what those more than a decade in prison years have were like, can you believe that you're on the other side of this? Is it was really hard for me to believe that I was gonna get out. One, because when I went to prison, I didn't speak English at all. And I didn't understand what was going on around me at that moment. I knew I was going to jail. I knew I was pregnant. I knew an accident had happened, but I really didn't comprehend. My mind couldn't wrap everything around they were talking and I couldn't understand what they were saying about the whole situation. So it was very difficult, very hard for me to, to even rest my mind around it. Leave my, they told me that they were going to take my kids, my daughter, they took her to CPS. It was really hard. It was super hard. Then uh, Finally, when I started understanding English a little bit inside prison, then I have my son. Uh, I have faith that I was going to go home. But then after so many years, judges telling them, hey, she's innocent and nothing happened. You start losing faith inside. And then you start wondering, hey, is this going to be my life to the day I die? And you just start questioning, wondering, and sometimes even questioning your own fate, you know, and, and it's sad. And so when when finally Vanessa told me, hey, you're going to get out. And we I remember we were in a detention center and she's like, you are free. And I was like, I don't believe it till they open those doors. Till they let me out, I will believe it. But I'm still sitting here inside and any moment they can come. When I got out, when I, I finally got out and I went to to a place that they have for me, I couldn't sleep for a couple of days. Uh, I was in my mind, it was like, if I fall asleep, I'm going to go back to prison. Like, I'm going to wake up in that place and I don't want to wake up in there. So I'd rather not sleep and stay up. And that happened like three days in a row. And then finally, I, I was like, I need to go to sleep. Mm. And then I, I, it was really hard. It was really hard to believe that I was upside. But now, like, I have my grandbaby. I have my daughter. My son is being hard. But we're trying to reconnect. We don't know each other, but we're trying. I understand well. You were in prison. You weren't able, although you could see your children at times, you weren't able to actually touch them. Is that right? That's right. Um, I was not able to touch them because of the nature of the crime. Has that been difficult in trying to reconnect with them 
at this point in your life? Oh, yes. Um, uh, right now, my daughter lives with me and here and like we hardly talk to each other. Uh, we try, but it's like we are two strangers. I left when she was one year old and then I've come home and she's 19 years old. Her, you know, she don't know me. And the times that, she, you know, she went to visit me probably six times in 18 years and talking on the phone, they couldn't afford phone calls. So can you imagine having, you know, living with her here is, is very, it's been difficult, very difficult. How about with your son? How are things going with him? Uh, we were living together for like a year when I got out. And uh, I, keep, I tell Vanessa this all the time that um, when, I, when I came home, I wanted everything back. Everything that they took from me, I wanted back. And it's a big mistake. It, you know, I wish, like, like it, I hope that they have some type of class inside that they, t they can tell you, like, hey, take us low. Because it was a big mistake bringing my son in my home, not knowing him at all. It was a disaster. You know, we don't know each other. Like I said, I had him in prison, you know, never, he don't, he don't have no memory of me whatsoever. So it's like bringing a stranger to your home, you know, and hoping that they will acknowledge you as their mother and calling, calling you mom and to these days that haven't happened, you know, they don't call me mom. So, you know, that's hard to, you know, they call me Rosa. So really? it's just like two strangers. Yes, yes. And um, I have tried so much, you know, um, I got I got married and my wife tries, you know, like trying to make a bridge with them, you know, uh, I'm living here with my wife and, uh, she opened her home for for my daughter, you know, because she wants us to have a connection, to reconnect, to have a relationship. But it's like, like I don't know, like they not open for it, or like mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like like they don't want to betray the people that they raise that raise them. I mean, Vanessa, so many questions are going off in my head, so many red flags, even beginning with the fact that she did not speak English before going into prison. My immediate question is the representation. How was she aware through police interrogations, through the court process? How was she aware of what was happening? I mean, have you gone back to look at that point in time to determine how this could have even happened? It's really unfathomable. Uh, during her interrogation, she was, um, you know, questioned by an officer who was Spanish speaking, um, but he weaponized her children, her child against her. And basically at the time, Rosa, you know, had a one year old daughter. She was breastfeeding and basically, you know, said, you know, if you tell me what I want to hear, then you can see your daughter. Um, and really just, um, you know, tried to get an admission from Rosa, which never came because this is something that, you know, she didn't do. Um, throughout the court process, 
imagine how difficult it is for somebody who speaks the language. It's a foreign, you know, process um, and relying on your counsel. Um, Unfortunately, um, you know, Rosa's lawyer just didn't fulfill his basic duties. So he never consulted with an expert who could have taken a look at the evidence um, way back in 2005 when she when she went to trial. And so um, the only expert he um, consulted with just didn't have the relevant uh, training or experience to weigh in on the issue. Uh, You know, in Rosa's case, the paramedics who responded to the scene of the choking had just never seen anything like this, nor had the emergency room doctors um, who, you know, treated the child when he first came in. And so they just jumped to the conclusion that this was so unusual atypical that it must have been intentional. But just because something's atypical doesn't doesn't mean it's intentional. And ultimately, when the Innocence Project took on Rose's case, we submitted the medical evidence to the top pediatric airway doctors um, at several of the nation's, you know, top hosp- children's hospitals. And all of them independently reviewed the evidence and came to the unanimous conclusion that uh, this was a tragic accident and no murder had occurred. I mean, Rosa, I... I, I can't believe that this was the experience for 18 years. I mean, just, I remember I nursed both of my children. I have a daughter and a son for a year each. And just thinking about where you are in your bonding when you are breastfeeding, where you are in developing that relationship, to have this happen at that moment and to know mother to mother that another child had lost their life, this must have just been so overwhelming for you in that moment and every day since. And, and now I understand you're fighting a different battle, even though you are, have been released and exonerated. This battle is now one for your health and your life in a different way. What's happening and what is the road ahead now for you? Um, I'm, I, right now I'm doing dialysis. I'm in a treatment three times a day. Uh, for four hours each treatment when I go in. Um, When I got out from prison, they diagnosed me that my kidneys were not functioning properly. And then they told me that I was going to need a kidney eventually. So um, I'm going to move to New York to find a kidney. But so far, it's no luck on that kidney. Uh, we're praying that somebody can be touched and be willing to help me to live my life. You know, I'm here um, struggling to leave. You know, if I don't go to a treatment, I can actually die because my blood had to be filtered constantly. Um, so I pray that somebody be able to help us. Not just Vanessa, me. Yeah. I want to, yeah. Go ahead, Rosa. No, please finish what you were saying. It's um, important. You know, uh, I was rough of being with my children, both of them. And now that I have the opportunity to be a grandma, I want to be there for my grandchildren. Um, you know, I'm only 41 years old and I, you know, my grandbaby is just barely five months old and you know, I pray this. I can see her going to her wedding, to her graduation. Uh, I want to see, I want to experience the things that I didn't did with my kids that I was not able to because 
I was robbed of that experience. Vanessa, how Rosa can has people learn? Can you tell me, Rosa, how, I mean, Vanessa, how people can help? Rosa's been um, evaluated for a kidney transplant at Wildcore now. She, the hospital is ready to do the transplant, and all we need at this point is um, a living donor, somebody who's willing to donate a kidney. If people would um, are interested and could go to the website kidney uh, number four rosa.com, kidneyforrosa.com, they can learn more about the living donor process. Um, and and really, um, that's what we're looking for right now. Somebody who's willing to be a donor. Um, Innocence Project fought along Rosa's side, helped her get her freedom back, but now she's in the fight for her life. And we're looking for partners to to make sure that she can fulfill all those things that she just talked about. I mean, Rosa, you and I are about the same age, and I just can't believe the parallel tracks. And but for the grace of God, as they say, go I and so many others to not have an injustice inflicted upon them as it was for you. I'm so sorry that we met this way, but I am so happy to know that you have been exonerated and that you have a chance, which is all, frankly, any of us ever asked for in life. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Vanessa, you as well. Rosa, I'll be thinking about you. Thank you. We'll be right Thank back. you so much. The mysterious deaths of three Kansas City Chiefs fans puzzling investigators and tormenting their families. The men were last known to have gone to a friend's house earlier this month. They were found dead a couple days later outside the house. Police have not yet said how the men died and are waiting for toxicology results. Here's CNN's Whitney Wilde. More than two weeks after 38-year-old Ricky Johnson, 37-year-old David Harrington, and 36-year-old Clayton McGinney were found dead in the back of a Kansas City home, there are few details and frustration is growing. Adriana Juarez, who shares a child with Ricky Johnson, says she feels too many questions remain about how long it took to find the three friends. How do you not know there's three dead bodies? According to CNN affiliate KMBC, the three men visited a friend's home, a rented house in northwest Kansas City, after the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Los Angeles Chargers January 7th. Two days later, a worried fiancé who hadn't heard from her loved one looked for him at the home. According to police, when there was no answer at the door, she broke into the basement of the residence and found a dead body on the back porch. When police arrived, they discovered two more bodies in the backyard. CNN is not naming the friend because he hasn't been accused of a crime or charged in the deaths. His attorney, John Paserno. In the early morning hours, Jordan, around 2 a.m., he believes, uh, he got sleepy. He said, I'm going to crash on the couch. Uh, and he said goodbye to his buddies, and he thought that they left out the front door. Kansas City police are waiting on autopsies and toxicology reports to determine how the men died. At this point, police consider this a death investigation, not homicide, noting it is still the case that no foul play was observed or suspected. Johnson's niece, Stephanie Walling, said they want answers and some sense of closure. I never thought it would get as much attention as it has. I mean, I'm hoping that with the attention that it is getting, that it will get us closer to getting answers. 
It can take a month or more to get toxicology reports and autopsy reports back, Laura, but every moment these families wait is simply gut-wrenching. Laura. Whitney Wilde, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Before we go tonight, be sure to check out the new CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart. It traces her explosive rise to success, staggering fall from grace, momentous comeback, and establishment as a true American icon. Here's a preview. Martha was about finesse, excellence, and perfection. There is no media personality, businesswoman, celebrity chef like her. She was sort of like an original influencer. All of those magazines and television shows. I think our standards are higher because of Martha. She's everywhere, Martha Stewart living. Her career starts to take off like a rocket. Martha is continually underestimated by male executives. You would read about it in the press, criticizing her. She wants attention, she wants power. She just doesn't want to stop. Martha Stewart is among those under investigation for suspected insider trading. Martha Stewart is being prosecuted not because of who she is, but because of what she did. Martha fell fast and hard. Today is a shameful day. The comeback was beginning before she ever left. She loves to be clever. She loves to surprise. And she loves to defy. If you'd asked me, would there still be interest in Martha Stewart 20 years from now? I would have said absolutely not. Boy, did I underestimate Martha Stewart. The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, Sunday at 9 on CNN. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.